0: Welcome to The Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined as always by Steve Hayes, David French, and Jonah Goldberg. This podcast is brought to you by The Dispatch. Visit thedispatch.com to see our full slate of newsletters and podcasts, and subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. Hey, guess what, guys? On November 9th and 10th, we are doing a major Dispatch Live conference. Go to whatsnextevent.com to see what's happening there. Tickets are $100 and include a new complimentary subscription to the dispatch. We've got interviews lined up with Congresswoman Liz Cheney, Senator Ben Sass, Senator Tim Scott. We'll have more interviews, panel discussions. We'll be announcing them on that website, whatsnextevent.com, for all of your post-2020 election needs. This week on the podcast, we are going to talk about Biden's closing argument, the rallies and campaign schedules of the candidates, election litigation heading into Tuesday, and the legacy of Mitch McConnell. Let's dive right in. Steve, we're coming to you on Biden's closing argument.
1: Yeah, really interesting to look at the argument that he's been making uh, increasingly over the past couple of weeks. It's been a theme of his campaign, but he's now made it, I think, the centerpiece of his closing argument. And it's this if Joe Biden is elected, he will be president uh, not of the red states, the blue states, but the United States, picking up on Barack Obama's 2004 convention speech. And that a Biden presidency will heal America after a divisive and difficult four years. The question I have is whether, having closed with that argument, Joe Biden is constrained as president if he wins. Will this keep him from being the Trojan horse for uh, super progressivism that uh, some folks on the left want him to be? And I'll start that question with you, Sarah.
0: I think that's an interesting question. I think that is the question of the Biden presidency and what the, the, the stressor on it will be throughout. You will have, in theory, a uh, you know Chuck Schumer over a majority in the Senate, Nancy Pelosi with a majority in the House, and then a Biden presidency being pulled by those branches to do more, do farther left. And remember, uh, Schumer and Pelosi have been sitting there Battling with Republicans who they feel like have broken the rules, taken advantage. So there's a lot of ill will built up, I think, on the congressional side that Biden has missed out on since his days in the Senate. And will they, you know, will their anger and resentment, et cetera, convince him that the Republicans are not acting in good faith? And I think that will lean hard on whether the Republicans act in good faith toward Biden. And I don't think at this moment there's a lot of evidence that they will right now uh we'll see what if biden wins what that win looks like and i think there is a difference between a squeaker and a blowout that knocks out a lot of republican senators in terms of how republicans will act towards a president biden but i do think that will be the question for at least four years Uh, And especially right away on court packing, on Green New Deal, on, uh, you know, a lot of the progressive wish list. So we shall see.
1: Yeah, David, if if his if his campaign is largely about, um, you know, restoring um, America and uh, ending the upheaval of four years of Donald Trump returning to normalcy, I mean, these are all consistent themes that Biden himself has articulated that his surrogates have articulated that have, I think, driven his campaign. If he, if he is elected on that basis and decides immediately to, to move to the far left, uh, does, does that, does that make the arguments that he's using to close the election? um fraudulent or phony? Well, I I I don't think so. I think he will behave in a way
2: that is consistent with the way that he has campaigned in this sense. That I, I think that one of the things the that he's going to, if he goes ahead and wins, if he does, that it'll get a lot of credit for is sort of ignoring the online world. Um, that he's run sort of the least online campaign in a very online world. And I, what I see from him, and I just really kind of got reaffirmed in this in the in the de- last debate, this guy wants to be an old-school Democrat. Now, he, he's been pulled to the left because the mainstream of the Democratic Party is to the left, and he's nothing if not a mainstream Democrat. So if the whole party goes to the left, he'll go to the left. But it seems to me he wants to be sort of an old-school Democrat. And, and it's hard for me to imagine him launching a new presidency by trying court packing, for example, the least popular of his you know potential initiatives. Instead, he's got lots of stuff on his plate that has not been done. He sort of has this target-rich environment of potential legislation. So I'd imagine him getting a freebie, kind of like Obama did with the stimulus package, with some coronavirus relief, then going into pivoting into healthcare, maybe immigration, things where he will at least have an argument that he has strong public backing for these things and sort of try to make the Republicans be unreasonable. And if they are unreasonable, then the filibuster is nuked. But I fully expect the much more radical stuff like court packing, like adding states to be something that is sort of his, he would strongly urge to be tabled and it would be sort of held in reserve, like the sword of Damocles over the head of the Supreme court that this is the thing the Supreme Court's going to have to think about um, during, the camp, do, during its, its term when it's deciding what cases to grant cert or not grant cert. And I think that's going to be sort of the way in which that is used. Uh, he, I think he's just got too much mainstream stuff to try to accomplish early on uh, for him to really sort of double down or move radically
3: left right away. So, is that right, Jonah? I, I don't know if it's because we are recording this at an unusually early time. Hmm. Um, so everyone has got a sort of a Jeb-level energy in this podcast <laughs> so far. I think it's mainly Steve. I could, Steve uh, is really bringing me down, I got to say. It's a real yeah. sort of Wilford Brimley vibe. I'm getting off of him this morning. Um, but uh, I also think there's something in the air right now because everyone is just being so nice. And uh, so I'm just going to... I'm going to stir the pot a little bit. I think there are, there's the idea that what you campaign on becomes a constraint once you're elected is, uh, well, just bless your heart. (laughs) People from Steve, from, from David's part of the country might say, um, Barack Obama literally ran on Joe Biden's promise of no red Mm -hmm. States, no blue States, just the United States. And he ended up being a very partisan guy. I know that the left thinks it's all because of Republicans, but, uh, I have a narrative on that, that I think this contradicts that to some extent. Um, George W. Bush ran as a uniter, not a divider. He tried it for about nine months and then things, (laughs) things went differently. Um, and, uh, in 2004, whatever it was that he was running on, I can't quite remember. Uh, it wasn't social security privatization. And that's what he said he had a mandate for after he got elected. Um, so I think that the whatever Biden campaigns on, it may constrain him politically in terms of his tone. Um, but that tone, the, the that tone has more to do with his own, as David said, his own instincts rather than the sort of the political realities and political external political constraints. You know, Tim Alberta uh, and I were talking about this and I talked about it with Chris Starwald again on, on my podcast. And, you know, this idea, Tim says, you know, if you could give... Joe Biden truth serum he would admit that he really would prefer if the Republicans held on to the Senate. Huh. And I think that's true and I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Um it would be the easiest thing for Biden to be able to fend off the left and say, you know, enough with this craziness is to say look, we just don't have the votes. I got to work with Republicans. This isn't like me wanting to be a centrist guy. This is me dealing with the reality that I got to work with the guy across the aisle because it actually turns out that Biden and 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 McConnell get along really well and have for years and whenever because Obama was so bad at dealing with the hill, they would always send Biden to go talk to McConnell and and they had a pretty good working relationship and I think they're legitimately friends. Um and so having McConnell be his bad cop would be a much bigger constraint than Um, you know, people reminding him, oh, you promised to be a uniter, not a divider and all that kind of stuff. Um, I suspect that there are still those natural constraints going on because there aren't enough votes to pack the courts. There aren't enough votes to add some states. I mean, Joe Manchin's not going to vote for that. Kristen Sinema's not going to vote for that. If the Democrats have as good a year as some suggest in 2022, and maybe there are those votes, but My hunch is that Republicans could actually take back the Senate if Biden let the left run the show for two years. So it's sort of like a wait and see kind of thing. But the underlying assumption there, and in David's
1: answer, and in Sarah's answer, is that Biden would prefer to be a centrist.
3: Is that true? I think, I think, well, it's been a misnomer. I mean, David touched on this slightly. Um, Biden was never a DLC Democrat right? He was never a, uh, Sam Nunn, uh, what was it? Chuck Robb. What was that guy's name? Um, uh, you know, even he wasn't even a Bill Clinton DLC guy back when Bill Clinton was a DLC guy, uh, he was never a centrist in that sense. He was a, he wanted to be a centrist within the goalposts of the democratic party. He wanted to be like, you know, uh, at the midpoint between the most right-wing democrat and the most left-wing democrat not between republicans and democrats and but i do think he's i don't think it's so much that he's a moderate or a centrist i think he's an institutionalist he spent his entire life in the senate except for eight years as vice president he believes in the process stuff and i think that's actually a that's one of the most commendable things about the guy as far as i'm concerned
2: Well, and and I don't, you know, I think he, as I said, he's in the middle of the Democratic Party, which is not the same thing as being in the middle of the of the of the country or in the middle, the American middle. Um, And the other thing I think is some of the radicalism won't be up to him necessarily. Um, You know, he might have to give his tacit permission if, for example, Chuck Schumer detonates the filibuster. Uh, But you know, I, I can easily imagine something happening early on. And again, this is unless there's sort of some political malpractice in play, where there is a mainstream, relatively popular, and mainstream Democrat, relatively popular proposal put forward. Maybe it's coronavirus that has too much money in it for the newly fiscally responsible Republican Senate. And they block it and filibuster it. And it's very popular. I could easily see Chuck Schumer moving right then and there to the nuclear option for legislation, doing away with it in an environment where it's the Republicans who seem unreasonable for, you know, much needed coronavirus relief. And then we're kind of off to the races with what the house and Senate start to send in uh, up into its direction. And you know does he have the ability to say you know to say to his own team uh hold on let's let's back up uh let's slow down but at the same time there's another thing that let's remember big legislation is complicated and time consuming and uh, and one of the reasons why i don't think obama got done as much as he wanted to get done perhaps in addition to thinking well he's got this ma- majority that he's just going to have for a while and it evaporated just right away is that It took a long time to do Obamacare. It was a long time to get to to do that. And I think we overestimate the ability to just send a big pile of complicated legislation straight up to the president's desk. But I I could be totally wrong about that.
0: Democrats have a fascinating opportunity to define the Republican Party if they take control Mm. of the Senate and the House. Because if this is a huge wave election, the Republican Party has been defined by Donald Trump. They will then, in theory repudiate at least Trump himself but Trump has so redefined the Republican Party and what it stands for for the last four years that basically the party will be floating out there sort of finding its moorings and there's nothing that defines a party better than being against the other party And so the Democrats, in a way, can decide which things the Republican Party will define itself as. And this certainly happened during the Obama years with Obamacare. The Republican Party basically became defined as against Obamacare. Uh, And so I think Biden has an interesting opportunity to do that and to decide what Republicans run on in 2018, which would be really fascinating if they sort of made that strategic decision. I'll give one example, by the way, of the sort of grievance on the left driving where they're headed in a sort of silly way. I went to vote yesterday and uh, on the Virginia ballot is a constitutional amendment to have a redistricting commission. And across the country, generally speaking, Democrats are in favor of nonpartisan redistricting commissions and Republicans are largely against it because uh, Republicans were controlling state legislatures and were benefiting from that, and Democrats were not benefiting from it in the last two redistricting cycles. Well, lo and behold, as you may know, Democrats have control of the Virginia state government now. And when I came up, and there were these big poster-sized sample ballots, I was very confused because the Republican ballot said that it was for the Nonpartisan Redistricting Commission, (laughs) and the... Fairfax Democratic Party was against the nonpartisan redistricting committee. And I was like, oh man, we are in for some four years of <laughs> both sides uh, hitting equilibrium, but switching what they believe in. And that could be a really interesting moment in American politics. And a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors, Bespoke Post. This fall, as you get back into the swing of things, Bespoke Post has brand new seasonal Box of Awesome collection for guys guaranteed to upgrade your life. My husband got the weekend travel bag. It is pretty great. This is like a canvas bag, leather straps. He looks good carrying it. I know Jonah got a cask for whiskey making. Steve got this like man shirt situation going on. Whether it's gear to upgrade your autumn craft beers or cozy threads for when the temperature dips, Bespoke Post only sends guys the best stuff every month. No matter what you're into, Box of Awesome has you covered. From style and grooming goods to barware, cooking tools, and outdoor gear, Box of Awesome has collections for every part of your life. To get started... Take the quiz at boxofawesome.com. Your answers will help them pick the right Box of Awesome for you. They release new boxes every month across a ton of different categories. It's free to sign up, and you can skip a month or cancel any time. Each box costs only 45 bucks, but has over $70 worth of gear inside. Get 20% off your first monthly box when you sign up at boxofawesome.com and enter the code DISPATCH at checkout. That's boxofawesome.com. Code dispatch for 20% off your first box of awesome. All right. With that, should we move on to the schedules of the candidates? So, David, I'm going to come to you first because you and I have had an ongoing discussion uh, about polling and about polling averages. And my argument has been that polls are about a 10-day lagging indicator because an event has to happen, whatever that event may be, And then it has to seep into the electorate. That can take five days to a week, depending on the event and just how much of a shock it is to the system. Then the poll has to go into the field. Uh, That takes, you know, four days sometimes. And then the poll has to come out another day or two. So oftentimes we're looking at a 10 day to two week lag from an event to actually seeing it show up in polls. Uh, And I also argued that the polls would narrow as we got closer to Election Day. I thought they would narrow in sort of early October. They didn't. Uh, They got more spread apart, David, as you and I have discussed. But here we are, less than a week out, and looky there. They're narrowing. So not by a lot. The national polls uh, were in the mid-10s with Biden leading. Now it's at 9. But those state polls are narrowing in interesting ways. Florida was at four points for Biden. Now it's at 1.9. North Carolina was in the threes. Now it's in two. Arizona at one point was at five this month. Now it's at 2.9. And yet on the schedule of the candidates, we have these rallies going on where uh, Kamala Harris is going to Texas. Joe Biden is going to Georgia. And yes, he's also <laughs> going to Iowa and Wisconsin, but Donald Trump is Iowa, keeping-
2: But Iowa's a big one. I mean, Iowa was not one that was necessarily considered super in play.
0: That's right. That's right. And, uh, and Trump is keeping a pretty normal schedule where you'd imagine he would be, North Carolina, Florida, Pennsylvania, et cetera. David, what do you think of their closing schedule? And what does that say about what the campaigns think is going on that uh, we're not seeing? I mean,
2: to the extent that we can really interpret from it in a in an era where Biden is doing just less traditional campaigning by a long shot, it seems to me that there's at least some modest play for the not just the win but sort of like the dunk hang on the rim, taunt the prone Trump campaign uh, in front of the roaring crowd kind of move that It does seem that there, there prob there are a lot of Democrats that are 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 making the case that there is a chance here for, I mean, if not nineteen eighty eight style win ninety two maybe ninety six maybe, and that it given the polling margins in some of these Midwest states, uh, there was just an ABC Washington Post poll that came out today showing that Biden had a seventeen point lead in Wisconsin which feels outliery <laughs> 17 feels outliery but it's a sign of the bowling in the midwest that they said that his lead in michigan was modest and i was looking at that modest lead and it was 7 well that's not super modest um so it might be a sign of their confidence there that they are um going to go for the bigger win of course you're you're your risk is so screamingly obvious, which is um, that if that this is this is uh, a repeat of 2016, that you know the the one thing that people will do is look back at the Biden campaign and say, "What on earth were you thinking when it came to you know your your campaign schedule?" Um, but I think in their defense, they'd say, "I mean, hey, look." If we were wrong, everybody, every polling entity aside from uh, what's the, you know, one or two sort of outliers, every the polling industry as a whole needs to be condemned, shut down, silenced, obliterated, not just us. This was a sort of a collective failure to discern the national will. But yeah, it seems kind of obvious to me that they'd really like to see something that's outside of the 2012, 2016 level of electoral vote margin and is moving more towards the 2008 or, or 96 or 92 margin.
0: Steve, do these rallies matter?
1: Um, I, you know, you've written a lot about that. I, I think they can be they can matter as sort of a galvanizing um, tactic, but less for Joe Biden than for Donald Trump. I think in these closing days, just by the nature of the rallies that Biden is having, you know, he's having these drive in rallies. Barack Obama has been doing events for for Joe Biden and, and we will have a, you know a field full of cars that by just by definition isn't going to have as many people attending the the other dynamic to to appreciate here is <clears throat> the extent to which biden is um doing the bidding of senate democrats and those competitive campaigns in the states that you've mentioned where democrats think a visit from biden to their state could help tip a competitive senate election in their favor they've been giving biden pressure. This has been part of the dynamic now for a couple months as Biden has continued to maintain these leads in competitive states. The Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee and the individual uh, campaigns, Senate campaigns, have been pushing Biden to come, have been pushing Biden to spend money in these states to to go up advertising um, in places where, you know, the, the Democratic candidate um, is not likely to win, but in a blue wave election with the the benefit of advertising in the state and, and perhaps a visit, I'm thinking of places like Texas and South Carolina and Georgia. Um, the view from some of those Democrats is that with that kind of additional effort, those marginal candidates unlikely to win in a typical election but perhaps competitive in a blue wave election could actually win so i think in a sense what biden is doing has as much to do with bringing along others as it does promoting his own candidacy but it is certainly the the case as david notes that the polling is pretty consistent here i mean we've seen some slight tightening but, you know, it's not like you have one polling outfit that has these numbers. I mean, the reason that we're able to point to these averages is because virtually everybody has similar numbers, not just in the public polling, too, I might add. You talk to Republicans who are polling in these states, they will tell you the same thing. And in some cases, those Republicans were had these numbers earlier, you know, showed a, showed a, a place like Montana being... Much more competitive early than the, the sparse public polling in Montana indicated. So I think it's a combination of, of those two factors.
0: Jonah, what will we look back and uh, say when it comes to campaign tactics? you know, where we have the Trump campaign doing a lot of on the ground work and the Biden campaign basically saying, yeah, yeah, no, go ahead and watch the Trump stuff. We'll let that be the deciding factor on whether you vote for us or him. Uh, was that a good strategy, bad strategy, or will it turn out that we find out the ground games don't make a difference?
3: Um, uh, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, it really, it all depends on who wins. Right. And, Right now, I think smart money is betting that Biden wins, and if Biden wins anywhere close to the margins that some people are talking about, um, then his strategy looks really good. Now the question is, did he need to have that strategy to win like that? And that's that's the unknowable thing. And um, but as someone who's been who was saying he should run a front porch campaign long before the pandemic hit, I think it's really hard to exaggerate how much the pandemic was sort of perfect for joe biden because it gave him an excuse not to have rallies it gave him an excuse not to try to compete with trump on his metrics but instead on his own it gave a whole permission structure for him to stay in the basement as it were it gave a whole permission structure for people to vote early um and I do think that we'll look back on it. And one of the things that, um, you know, part of my argument about why Trump gets this stuff wrong is that not only is he frozen in this flat circle of time about 2016 and thinks the electorate hasn't changed since 2016. Um, but he also gets his intelligence on the ground from watching shows that butter him up every night. And when you follow, If you really think that Lou Dobbs has got his fingers on the pulse of the body politic, and you take his advice and his guests' advice for how you should run your campaign, you're gonna get into trouble. And so like on the mask stuff, I think the mask thing is, we're gonna look back on that and say that was, if not literally, then at least emblematically, a perfect example of how the Trump campaign screwed up, because poll after poll after poll is more pro-mask than anti-mask. and Trump may constantly talk as if he was taking the majority opinion, position when he wasn't. And Biden didn't have to be strident in taking the majority position because his whole strategy was in letting Trump hurt himself and stridently yell about his minority positions on all sorts of things, which is just sort of nuts. On, on the broader picture, I think it's just really important to remember sort of touching on what Steve said that you know, the Biden campaign has seen all the polls we've seen. We have not seen all the polls the Biden campaign yes. has seen. And mm-hmm. they have, as as Haley Barber might say, um, spent enough money to scald a wet mule on uh, polling and on focus groups and all of these things. And that is one of the reasons... I mean, look, Biden, Biden's a gregarious, press-the-flesh, not-in-the-tubin-sense kind of politician <laughs> who um, wants to be out there and glad hand and all that. And, um, and he went against all his natural political instincts. He didn't do that simply because of a hunch. They have a theory of the race. They have a theory of what the electorate wants. They have a theory about the way people react to Donald Trump and they've been remarkably consistent sticking to it. And I have to think that that's because they've done more research on this. Meanwhile, Trump's position on when it comes to polling and research is if it's a good result for him, it's a good poll, not anything else. And um, and so I think he's just going back to his instincts of of rallies. And I think rallies are important. But at this point, you can only rally your base if you're Donald Trump. He's who you watch those rallies. There's no effort to bring in a new voter um, other than to just simply declare, hey, suburban women, will you like me? Which is like not (laughs) I mean. If you were at a bar and you made that kind of pitch, people would say, oh my gosh, call this guy a cab. I mean, it's a weird kind of approach to politics.
0: I think that the schedules of the candidates in the last week are the way that you know what they're seeing that you're not. And look, I got 2016 as wrong as anyone else did and thought that Hillary would pull it out. But I will say the Friday before the election, she was headed to Michigan. And I said publicly, something is wrong here. They're seeing numbers that we're not seeing. We're being, you know, Mm -hmm. the polling averages had Michigan at like six points. You don't send your candidate on a Friday before the election to a state you're winning by six points. And I said, the only way she's going to Michigan is if they have numbers that they believe more that show her within one point and frankly losing by one point in Michigan in order to send your candidate with the most precious resource that they have at that point, their time to a state uh, that publicly they think they're winning by six points. So I don't think we're seeing that right now from any of the candidates. But it's also not the Friday before the election. Uh, okay.
3: Hey, can I ask one, one one quick point as a direction on this? Um, for six months back before Brad Pascal um, had a bad couple of days, uh, <laughs> we were told over and, over and over and over and over and over and over and over again that the Trump team has the greatest digital operation. Um, since Skynet, right? That they had this this granular understanding of, of micro-targeting and all of these various things. And again, I'm not a regular Facebook user, so I, I, I don't know how they've been doing on Facebook, but I get hundreds of Trump campaign emails from various lists, and two-thirds of them are like, you've always been with me from the beginning. You've been my strongest supporter. Yeah. Um... Uh, I we have to come to you one more time. Um, there and and that's like among the least absurd pitches that they've made to me. Um, have has there been any evidence to confirm that they actually had this great digital operation, or because you would think if they could micro target, that would show up on their email too. Um, but I don't know how this stuff works, so maybe it works differently and different on different platforms but do we have a sarah do we have a sense about where the digital the comparative digital operations of both teams are
0: no is the best answer we probably won't until afterward but there's little clues along the way that uh, you know yes the digital operation is supposed to target voters but of course if the voters aren't there it can't do much about that it can only tell you that they're not there and the best piece of data we have on that is that in September, they were spending 77 cents to raise a dollar, which means uh, either their operation isn't as good as they said possible, or that the people aren't there who they need to be there in order to raise these small dollar numbers, which I think is more likely so that they're hitting the same people. There's enormous list fatigue, and they're not able to expand that list, uh, which is a really bad sign when Part of the reason you raise small dollars is to raise money, obviously. But another part of it <laughs> is to get that sort of stickiness and attachment from those voters. They've given $5, they're bought in. It doesn't matter whether it's $5 or $5,000 actually. And so if all of a sudden you're not able to get those people and find those people, that's going to put a lot more work on your field team to go find them door to door, literally.
1: Yeah, I think what, what Trump... Operatives would tell you is that they have been working tirelessly to identify Trump-style voters who did not vote in 2016 and wouldn't necessarily show up in the things that we're discussing. I mean, wouldn't necessarily be sort of obvious um, donors. You know, these are more marginal voters, um, not people who would be. Trump enthusiasts almost by definition because they didn't show up. So they're trying to bring out, particularly in the upper Midwest, more white working class uh, rural voters uh, who didn't show up last time. And there are there are lots of them. Um, So they set out to target those demographic cohorts. And as Sarah says, we'll have to wait until after the election to see how they did. I the do registration think on the, on,
0: numbers are positive on that front. They certainly in Pennsylvania, it, for instance, places, yeah. Republicans have blown Democrats out of the water in terms of new registrants. Yep. But the Democrats argue that that's actually it's not new voters. It's people who were Democratic voters switching their registration to Republican, which is fascinating if that's true. But it, it, it is interesting that that's the Democrats argument over how they're losing the registration battle.
1: Yeah, that would hmm. seem to almost double their problem, right, I don't know <laughs> yeah. what that's, yeah. I don't know what that's it's not a great <laughs> explanation. That's necessarily there. the greatest, the greatest way to make the <laughs> argument. Just a just a final a point on this. You know, I think you, you, Sarah, you mentioned the the seventy cents on the dollar to raise money. I've had some interesting conversations over the past few days about that exactly. We did a a, a morning dispatch item. Uh, Declan Garvey reported out for late last week. I think it was Friday. Looking at the mail program and the, the, the fact that, you know, if you signed up for a Trump list of any kind, and even in some cases, if you haven't, you've, you've just been inundated with, with emails, many of them from Eric and Donald Trump Jr. um, Not really asking you politely to contribute to their father's campaign, but demanding that you contribute to their father's campaign and that if he loses, it's because you haven't answered this one email from Friday morning at eight 53. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's kind of this over the top absurd, uh, email campaign. And several people I've talked to have, have made the, the point, um, that it seems designed less to raise money for, and, and, uh, sort of galvanize conservative voters in the short term for a Donald Trump election, as it is to accumulate names for people that can be monetized in a post-election world. Um, so they, they keep these names, they keep sending, they keep spending this money on donor prospecting expanding their lists again and again and again so that they have more people to reach out to to you know hawk goods or bring to trump tv or what have you in a post-election world it's a pretty cynical view of what they're doing right now but i've heard it enough um from people who are really smart about this stuff that i uh, i believe there's some truth to it
0: Well, I want to move to David's topic, but just let me give you one more cynical take on the rallies before we leave the topic, which is I think that the Biden campaign does not think that rallies have any particular effect on turning out their voters this time around, whether it would in some other cycle. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to Georgia and Texas, not because they think it matters, but because in fact, they don't believe it matters Except that it will demoralize Trump voters who now believe that Biden has won this by so much that he's showing up in Texas and Georgia, and we saw a little piece of that where there was this—I uh, don't know—like story that broke through the the twitters and the online world that Trump had pulled down all of his ads in Florida because they were out of money, which just turned out not to be true. But again, if you're sort of a regular Trump voter, you're seeing that Biden's going to Texas and Georgia. Trump's out of money to run ads in Florida. And I think that the, uh, you know, I've said all along, the big difference between politics and corporations is that uh, Coke doesn't benefit when they convince Pepsi drinkers not to buy any soda at all. But that's not true (laughs) in politics. And so I think we're seeing a little bit of the like, hey, no need to buy soda this year. You just drink some water at home. Uh, (laughs) David, why don't you walk us through what's going to happen in the run-up to election day, election day, some of these litigation pieces.
2: Yeah. So we have, um, what a
0: mess. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I've been <laughs> quoting that movie for a while. It's a mess. One of the, the oh best my political goodness. movies.
2: Goodness, What a mess. So I would urge everyone to read, uh, the morning dispatch today. Um, I have a newsletter that, uh, today also on these election cases and, and we're going to we're gonna bring in a little bit of advisory opinions right now, yes. Sarah. Yes, everyone needs some. Deer jacking? We're going to talk about deer <laughs> jacking? <Yeah>.
0: Deer jacking <laughs> a little, a little really deer turned jacking. into our most popular pod. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Amazing. Who knew that we had such a large deer hunting crowd <laughs> uh, in, in, of advisory opinions listeners? But we have, and so I'd urge everyone to read The Morning Dispatch. I also wrote about an aspect of what's happening right now. And that is we have just a web of voting rights cases that are charging their way through the system. And it could, it could be the case if, if the polling is correct and the national margin is big and the margin in the Upper West is clear, that a lot of these just sort of go poof. Um, but if this thing is close, these cases will get contentious Fast. Uh, I was listening to a daily podcast, New York Times daily podcast. They went back through some of the Bush v. Gore stuff, and I was just thinking, we can't, we can't handle that in 2020, and we certainly can't handle it in about six states, eight states. <laughs> but it seems to be, Sarah, and I'll go to you first. That what if I'm going to oversimplify everything? It is this: if it's a state, if the state authorities have taken action in response to the pandemic, then the federal courts, the, what the Supreme Court is saying to the federal courts so far, pre-Amy Coney Barrett, is leave it alone, leave it alone. If the federal courts have taken action to override the state in during this pandemic, what the Supreme Court is saying is stay out of it, federal courts, stay out of it, which because it's 50 different state elections on the surface makes some sense with the exception that the voting right is a also a federally secured right. It's not just a state secured right. So I think that you can begin to see some of the tension here. If the state's reaction to the pandemic is seen to be inadequate to secure voting rights, especially as the pandemic is getting worse. Um, So Can I, if, can I morph my question just a little bit? Sure. (laughs) So here's the morphing. So number one, Sarah, um, A, do you think that that framing is correct? B, is it sustainable? And C, with the, with the pandemic suddenly getting worse in a lot of places, is that going to disrupt some people's in-person voting plans?
0: So, on the first question, there's a Supreme Court doctrine called Purcell, which basically states exactly what you just said, David, that in the immediate run up to an election, the federal courts should not be party to changing the rules and that rule changing in general is disfavored. Uh, and the Supreme Court, this time around, inexplicably to me, in particular, Justice Roberts, has not defined the contours of what Purcell actually means right. in a pandemic when the rules have to change a little, um, and yes, they Mm -hmm. could have changed them back in March, but we didn't know really in March that this would last to November, maybe around June or July. We had a pretty good idea that it was time to start making plans. Well, by the time the legislatures got around to it, it was August. I think Pennsylvania is such a good example of this because (laughs) uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, as we discussed, are three of the states that by law, you can't count absentee ballots early. You can't start opening and counting the ballots. And Pennsylvania, both Democrats and Republicans, uh, thought that was silly this time around when you were going to have such a huge influx of mail-in ballots. And so both sides were like, hey, we need to start counting these early this year. Let's just fast forward. They're not going to be counted early this year because Hmm. it turns out trying to do some log rolling in August... Then all of a sudden it was late August. Well, the the Republicans originally wanted three weeks then within their own caucus, they were like, well, we can't do three weeks. How about three days? And the governor, the democratic governor was like, well, no, I want three weeks. And the Republicans like, well, we could give you three weeks, but, uh, it'll come with these strings, which were poison pills. And then they were like, let's do three days with this other stuff. And so around and around politics, that's how it works. And here we are in November and they never got it done. Uh, Then most of these cases turn around how you're going to count ballots that are received after election day. These absentee ballots. Now, if, you know, some of it is what if they're postmarked before election day? But some of it is there is no postmark or they are postmarked after election day, up to three days after election day. Will you still count them? Some of it's on whether we'll count, um, look at signature matching at all. Which I think is fascinating because I just watched the uh, West Wing tribute episode that's on HBO Max where they redo Hartsfield's landing on like a stage setting. And the pitches that they make for the commercial breaks from the actors were uh, in one of them that there's can't be voter fraud because we do signature matching. But in court, they're arguing we shouldn't do signature matching. Um, And there's actually quite a bit of science that signature matching is BS anyway. So I'm not really taking a side on that. I just find it fascinating. It's witchcraft. witchcraft, It is. Um, But I thought that the part that concerned me the most was the reaction to the Wisconsin case from the Supreme Court that just came out. So Pennsylvania had had a case in the Supreme Court where basically... David, exactly what you said, they deferred to the state Supreme Court, which was going to allow these ballots to be counted after the fact. Wisconsin was the opposite. And so it was the opposite result. They said in Wisconsin, we won't count ballots that come in after election day. When the Pennsylvania case came out, everyone sort of went, huh, all right, is what it is. And the headlines were mostly, you know, Supreme Court deals blow to Republicans in election litigation. But when the Wisconsin case came out, the left said that this was further proof that we needed to pack the court, that this was the court going totally crazy, and that they were setting the groundwork for handing the election to Donald Trump if they could. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's, way- <laughs> That's blowing this way out of proportion when we had the exact same case, basically, that came out the other way. So maybe look at why Pennsylvania came out the opposite of Wisconsin versus all of a sudden the election's going to get stolen for Donald Trump by the Supreme Court. And the, the fact that that narrative was just kind of accepted everywhere that I've seen it, to me is not a great sign for what happens if this is a close race or if, forget the presidency, if the Senate hangs in the balance and then there's a bunch of these Senate uh, recounts potentially as well.
3: Steve, do you feel like some people with ski masks Hijacked our plane and held an AO, you know, advisory opinions was, podcast on our podcast. This is, a I was garbage. just
2: about to go to you, Jonah.
3: I was just about, <laughs> Jonah,
0: what do you think of the Purcell doctrine? You, <laughs>
3: um, I, I like the odor free version of that because the, 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 sometimes these hand sanitizers have smell really weird. No, um, so, uh, so here's what I was going to
2: ask you, Joe. Yes, hit me. Okay. Is so we just laid out here's these two separate here's what the court's doing if it's a federal change from a federal judge of to state standards the the court is saying no if it's a state change to state standards the state is saying yes bottom line is as somebody wrote to me today so wait a minute we can have a situation where say Trump wins Wisconsin by two thousand votes. And there's twenty thousand uncounted mail-in ballots as a result yeah. of a five-three decision uh, made by uh, Trump, uh, you know, Trump and Republican-appointed judges. How's that going to play? Um, is are we laying? The, are these just putting aside the legal doctrines? Is this something that um, could call into question the popular legitimacy? of an outcome in a close election? Um, yes.
0: <laughs> the Controversial opinion, Jonah. Yeah. No,
3: yeah. I mean, it, look, it is, it is, it is a hot mess. And mm-hmm. um, I get the principle that, as, as I understand it, that the Supreme Court is trying to apply in all of this, but as just a simple factual political matter, if it is it, it would be let's say there was no pandemic and there wasn't this torrent of early voting and we just had a fairly normal election if if trump were to get reelected again by losing the popular vote again by an even broader margin than the last time as much as i'm a defender of the electoral college that is a political nightmare for yeah. for this country and um and I know that the nat- there's, a natural conser- there's a natural tendency among conservatives, when I point out things like that, to say, but so what? You know, facts don't care about your feelings, blah, 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 blah. And <laughs> that's fine. But as a political matter, there are an enormous number of people who feel like the GOP is rigging the system in favor of uh, a shrinking demographic and a desire to sort of have a, a minority, political minority stranglehold on the levers of power that is not representative of their actual numbers in the population. And as much as I'm, I can defend some of these small R Republican type things. Politically, that's just a mess. It's just, it's just terrible. And, um, and I suspect that there is something's going to have to give if, if, if we're really looking at dispositively huge numbers for Biden, which we may not be again, Trump can still win, right? Uh, I think it's like a 17% chance. Um uh, that's what my tic-tac-toe rooster says when I ask. <laughs> um, but uh the if 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 it is just obvious that there is this deluge of of mismatch of votes for Biden versus Trump, um the old adage about how the court reads the headlines too, I think they also read the 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 vote tallies, and I think that would be um you'd see some give there in weird places to accommodate Mm -hmm. that. That said, um, I do want to return to a point I made on last week's podcast where I pointed out, you know, which we called Chekhov's gun in homage to my point about how this whole thing is going to end. Um, I want to, I want to expand my prediction. It's not, not necessarily that Amy Coney Barrett will rule against Trump on the court. I, she also might Recuse herself from any election decisions, which would render the court a 4 4 tie. And as a result, the lower court thing would stand. So again, she would help Trump. And, um, because I, I have to say, I, I really, really, I know this is a tangent. I disliked her participating in that political rally thing. I'm glad she's on the court, but I think she does have a political problem of seeming like she's just too into MAGA world. Um, even though I don't think that's necessarily accurate on the facts. And so I, I do think there's not a terrible case. I don't know what the law says, but as a matter of political optics, her recusing herself from some of these cases might be better for the Republic um, than her participating in them. But that's just my two cents.
2: There's an interesting recusal theory about uh, the Obamacare case that she may recuse from the Obamacare case because she participated in a moot court about it. And so, uh, at least to some extent, her opinion about the Obamacare case is already known. Um, Spoiler alert, uh, it does not appear that she would have voted to overturn the whole law. Um, So there there might be some pretty compelling arguments, even though it's arguably not legally required or not legally required that there might be some prudential considerations. So here's my question to Steve. Steve? (laughs)
1: Thoughts. I like that. I like that. I can take it in any direction I want to. So, just two very big picture takeaways from all of this, and and again, um, people should go and look at uh, Wednesday's Morning Dispatch, where we have a sort of point by point uh, review of all of these disputes, state by state by state. Is sort of long term uh impression and and short-term concern the long-term impression is when you look at these states cumulatively it it is hard to escape the fact that republicans want people to vote less and Mm -hmm. while that's not necessarily new that is not a strong place for a political (laughs) party to be Uh, If you have confidence in your ideas and the ability to persuade people that you're right, you should be happy to have more people vote. And I know the people who work in the trenches of electoral politics will call that hopelessly naive because they have in the past. Um, But it's hard for me to to get to the point where you'd be comfortable with a, a party that is determined to keep people from voting um it's just a, an ugly place or to not be. counting be their vote. uncomfortable with it yeah right. or not counting their but what whatever the I mean there are about 50 different ways in which this broad view manifests itself and very few of them are defensible in in my in in my view um the, the shorter term concern to go back to the point that Jonah was making is that it, If this is a close election, it's a, it's a huge mess. I mean, we are in for some really, really difficult times. The, the, it's, it's not just in a place like Wisconsin where, you know, to use the, the 2000 vote margin with 20,000 votes to be counted or not to be counted. It is like that in every swing state in, in one way or another. And that's, that is the concern because then you just have a series of arguments about how election laws were written and how they will be applied. And with, with I would say, already questions about the legitimacy of the elections, questions about le- legitimacy of the courts, um, to throw a close election with those kinds of arguments Potential outcomes where the overall result lies, you know, arguably on who best handles these court cases to lay that on top of the 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 unrest that we've seen, the polarization that we're living with, I think has would would be a recipe for for real uh, unrest, additional unrest and sort of a nightmare. After the election, that is, in my view, the worst case scenario. Uh, stripping aside, regardless of who wins, that is the worst case scenario. Is is if the path to that eventual victory goes this way, uh, we're I think we, there are big trouble to come. And and last point, I think the the just to, the, the something that I've been saying for a while that that has been sort of the front of my mind. Sarah's written about a couple times. I think it's an underappreciated phenomenon just how much voters on each side, uh, partisans on each side, think that their man is certain to win and mm-hmm. not not just certain to win, but certain to win big. I, I was uh, communicating with a, a good friend of mine last night, very, very strong Trump supporter who has been making Mike the Pence? argument- for six weeks. <laughs> this was not Mike Pence. Um, also though, from Indiana, interestingly, um, hmm. this person has, has been saying for months that Trump is going to win. The The polls were wrong in 2016. You know, all the, the egghead uh, elites in the cities wrote off Trump and he was right in 2016. And therefore he'll be writing it in 2020. The extent to which that um, thought exists in the minds of, I'd say most of my Trump supporting friends, and again, this is anecdotal, so the anecdotal caveat, but I, I worry that whatever the result that everybody's going to, you know, people on either side will feel that it has been in one way or another stolen, even if it's a clean win. So you go in and you're a Trump supporter and you think there's a land a landslide coming, and then there's not, you're going to feel like you were robbed. And, you know, people who are Biden supporters will say, but look at all of the polls, the polls for months and months and months have said this, this is the outcome we're getting. You're crazy to think that, you know, this was somehow stolen. But of course, you have the president at every turn preemptively sort of seeding the ground to make the case that this is illegitimate. And I think on the flip side, if Trump were to win, because all of the polls have suggested what they have, because it's been so consistent, because we started a podcast today with my question about what the Biden presidency would be like, it will be hard for, for sort of you know non- uh, for, for media types, for non-Trump supporters and others to say, well, you know, it just was an obvious win. This is what happened. So I think adding that on top of the the court cases that we've talked about, there is still a real potential in any kind of a close race for, for some real ugliness in, in the weeks ahead.
0: Let's take a quick break and hear from one of our sponsors today, Acton Line Podcast. Acton Line is the flagship podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty, dedicated to the promotion of a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. With episodes released every Wednesday, Acton Line brings together writers, economists, religious leaders, thinkers, journalists, newsmakers, and more in conversations that bridge the gap between good intentions and sound economics. By demonstrating the compatibility of faith, liberty, and free markets, conversations on Act in Line reveal how economic freedom is essential to creating an environment in which religious freedom can flourish, but also that the market can function only when people behave morally. Faith and freedom must go hand in hand. To subscribe to Acton Line, visit acton.org slash dispatch or search Acton Line on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or where fine podcasts are available. That's acton.org slash dispatch to subscribe. Well, let's move to a unifying figure, Mitch McConnell. Jonah?
3: (laughs) So, um, I was just thinking about this, you know, Amy Coney Barrett, whatever you think about, The optics of it all whatever you think about her qualifications this is just a massive win for conservatives in the political sense it is a massive win for the conservative legal movement it is a massive win for really the conservative establishment um and uh and i think it's that last point that really doesn't get well understood we've we've lived in a weird world where um all wins for the president get counted as among, particularly among conservatives, uh, but among, I think, the media in general, all wins for Trump get counted as Trump wins. All failures by Trump get counted as, um, depending on who you're talking to, sort of the establishment or the deep state undermining him. And... Uh, this is an article of faith that, with, that can withstand almost any amount of analytical or factual uh, dissection. <laughs> and, um, and so it just occurs to me that if you were a historian writing about this period, whatever you think about Mitch McConnell as a person, whatever you think about Mitch McConnell as a political actor, um, whatever your feelings about the Merrick Garland stuff, all of that to one side, Mitch McConnell is the single most successful political figure of the la- of the of the Trump era, including if Trump loses, Trump. And um, and it's a remarkable thing when you you have to go back and remember in 2018, Steve Bannon, you know, would swoop into these various primary races on his bat wings, land with his <laughs> hooved feet in a cloud of sulphurous gas, and put up these, Trumpy, uh, troll characters to run not against whoever the Republican candidate was in the state, but running against Mitch McConnell. It was an article of faith across the MAGA right that Mitch McConnell was the singular obstacle to Donald Trump's total victory and that he was representative of the deep, of the, the deep state and the never-Trumper resistance, yada, 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 yada. And it turns out that the thing that the Trumpers consider to be really Trump's shining achievement was it was delivered by Mitch McConnell and um which is three justices on the Supreme Court and a huge number of conservative justices on the judiciary as well. So I guess I'll just I'll 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 make it a more open-ended question because I always forget that I'm supposed to ask you guys questions about this stuff <laughs> and simply say uh Sarah, how do you think Mitch McConnell will be remembered both on the right and in general um, in the years to come.
0: It is fascinating to me that for 100-plus years, it was the speakers of the House that were considered so powerful and memorable, and we've seen a total shift during the McConnell years in particular away from the House and the power of the Speaker of the House over to the Senate and perhaps Mitch McConnell was just the right man in the right moment, but I actually think he has something to do with that shift as well, or the continued shift at least. And I think Mitch McConnell will be remembered as the most powerful Senate Majority Leader in United States history. Boom! Boom. That's it. Boom. Yeah. Mic drop.
3: Um, David, where, how do you uh, apportion? Um, credit or blame for how the Republican party has handled Donald Trump uh, over those last four years. And where do you put Mitch McConnell in that mix?
2: You know, it's really remarkable how Mitch McConnell has transformed from the object. I mean, the object of just hatred. I mean, Breitbart was almost like an anti Mitch McConnell hate site for a while um, into sort of like the, the hero, one of the heroes of the MAGA right, and I, and through it all, Mitch McConnell has just kind of been Mitch McConnell. He's right, ruthlessly efficient. <laughs> he seeks to project protect his majority. He understands where his leg- legacy is going to be located, and he just goes right after it. Um,
0: but now there is like the memification of Mitch McConnell. I mean, it's it's sort of an R B G reverse negative. Thing of like, remember you know the turtle and cocaine Mitch and all of that. It's oh, fascinating.
2: Yeah, yeah I, I mean, it it just is absolutely remarkable the extent to which the perception of him in MAGA country has just flipped on its head. Um, and and the other thing that's kind of weird about it is that you know we've heard all of these pundit, these MAGA pundits, and sneering at conservatism Inc., You know, and some of them are particularly disdainful, some of them of classical liberalism and fusionism. Well, do you know what the story of the judges is? The story of the judges is the absolute triumph of the personification of Conservatism, Inc., the Federalist Society, this entity that has spent really decades building up this pipeline of, of judges who are, guess what, almost all of them sort of classical liberal originalists who some of the populist uh some of the popular more intelligent populist thinkers go wait a minute these are some of the same kinds of you know legal minds and that we don't want right <laughs> these are not your integralists these are not your you know common good conservatives um the and so what what has happened here is a triumph of conservative ink and 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 classical liberalism working through a, uh, a a streamlined judicial confirmation process, streamlined, ironically enough, by Harry Reid. <laughs> and a lot of forces have come together at once. And and how will it be remembered? I think one thing that'll be interesting as as people reflect back on um, the the Trump era is kind of how much the defeated the alleged you know the defeated. Conservatism Inc. aspect of their GOP actually prevailed, actually achieved policy successes from the Ryan tax cut to the McConnell FedSoc judicial pipeline, and how much the populist side really didn't get much at
1: all. Well, they got to own the libs. <laughs> So, so I did was, get to own the libs. I got some good
2: memes and that puts a few miles of a lot of food on wall. people's plates, but only A lives. few
3: miles of wall, but yeah. yeah, that's, that's it. Steve, any thoughts on this? I, 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 to quote, to quote, well, first of all, to quote Mitch McConnell, first you get the, first you get the EAO, then you get the money, then you get the power. But to quote David, uh, thoughts? <laughs> I mean, sounds like a sounds like a, a, a David
1: French endorsement for for Donald Trump. I mean, the things that have happened in the Trump era on the, uh, you know, for for conservative establishment and philosophical classical liberals, uh, huge wins. Um, no. And, and I, I would just say you're you're right to point out that um, a lot of the sort of MAGA wish list has not happened, despite the fact that the president is. Touring the country now, telling his rally crowds that the that the wall is being built is is uh, has made a ton of progress, and that Mexico is paying for it. And literally, he's making that case now. It's sort of for for four years has been the easiest thing to point to uh, of the failures of you know sort of the the Trumpy campaign. Slogans from 2016, and he's now just decided that he's going to just claim it's true, even though it's not true. Steve, the wall is going to be done in two weeks. It's probably right. Probably Probably right. Just just like healthcare is going to come out in two weeks, and Mexico is going to somehow pay for it, either by secret tariffs or. Um, the most interesting thing I think is is uh, a point that David made, which is that Mitch McConnell did what he did simply by being Mitch McConnell and pressing on Mitch McConnell's priorities. I mean, his number one priority for years, in addition to just uh, remaining Senate Majority Leader, has been um, to remake the federal judiciary. He's not, there's no secret about it. He doesn't pretend otherwise. He talks openly about it, he uh, emphasizes how important it is, and it's precisely what he's done. Um, you know, I think his critics including some on the the erstwhile tea party right and elsewhere would say he's maybe put too much emphasis on that and even back during you know the 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 late obama administration could have spent more time focusing on pushing policies and having pol- at least policy differentiation for campaign purposes than he did but he was almost singularly focused on on the federal judiciary and i think we're seeing the results of this. Mitch McConnell will be, I think, largely responsible for, for Donald Trump's greatest achievement, um, which is the remaking of the federal judiciary and putting three conservatives on the Supreme court. And he is not, and never has been anything close to a MAGA head. Um, he, he privately continues to Uh, Criticized the president to express grave reservations about what Trump has done to the country, to the Republican Party, and never sort of went Trumpy the way that uh, some others in the Senate have. Some of them, I think, because they really believe it, some of them purely for rhetorical reasons. McConnell hasn't really done that. Um, he's managed to stay in the president's good graces. I think, in part, because Trump has realized or has been told repeatedly that McConnell is the one who can deliver on a huge part of his legacy, and they've had this marriage of convenience for that reason. But uh, I agree that when people look back on a Trump presidency, the, the sort of ha- whether you like the way that that it happened or didn't, whether you like that the federal judiciary has been remade or you don't, it will be seen as his crowning achievement, and most of the credit will be due to Mitch McConnell.
0: And with that, the most important question of the podcast, Steve, what's your favorite Halloween candy? Snickers. Oh,
1: that's it. Wow, that's Snickers. like a really clear, good, good classic. take.
0: Actually, now is it uh, the the big, like normal size Snickers or the mini Snickers?
1: No, I mean it's the king size Snickers. Give me the <laughs> massive foot long, you know, Dookie in the pool, uh, Caddyshack. Although that was a Dookie that was a that was, that was a Babe Ruth. Ruth. Yes, exactly. Uh, Baby. But that Ruth. changes. That, those are also that's, good. So
0: that changes the ratios, though between the real size, the king size and the mini size and the ratios matter a lot to me. Okay. So you're king size Snickers.
1: Yeah, maybe. I mean, look, I just remember when I was trick or treating back when I was a kid, the best houses were the houses that gave out the full size Snickers bars. Like if you, if you got one of those rich people, (laughs) you would, yeah, you would go around the block again and again and again, and keep like showing up so that you could get more of those.
0: David?
2: Well, I just have to say, Snickers is, is the best golf course candy when you're winning a closest to the pin competition. <laughs>
0: accident, not I an achievement, Sunday. David.
2: Achievement, not an no. accident. And, uh, but the uh, the best co- candy is the Reese Peanut Butter Cup. The single, not the, the full-size one, the single full-size Reese Peanut Butter Cup yeah. is
0: clearly,
2: clearly the best
3: candy. Jonah? Okay, well, first of all, we have to have a second conversation about the pronunciation of recent, but... uh, (laughs) And dispatch. um, Yeah. Um, uh, So I I think the peanut butter cup claim is defensible. Um, I think the Snickers claim is fine. Correct, correct is the word you're looking for? Um, Frankly... uh, you know if I had my druthers while trick-or-treating I would like a wad, thick wad of cash but I just never Weird. get it. Um Weird. but uh I gotta say I I I am I'm, I'm a big Butterfinger fan and I think but I think the thing that in part because it's so rare and it's so good, uh Twix mm. I think is the, is a jackpot uh, Halloween candy to get. An apple is an act of cruelty by people who are thieves No, of raisins. And I've gotten Raisins. <laughs> and raisins. Or pop, boxes of or, raisins. Yeah, yeah. Or popcorn oh, ball. Popcorn ball. That's another oh. one. Uh, dental floss, you know, another.
0: <laughs> the um, box of raisins was always the most demoralizing. Uh, I find it interesting that you all picked chocolate, and I wonder whether you're forgetting your sort of early trick-or-treating days when, in fact, as a child like an early child, you would have preferred the sugary ones over the chocolate ones, which would have come later in your trick or treating Halloween era. Never.
3: Nope. I think no y'all change. are just wrong. Mm. I think
0: your memories mm. are wrong because you're so old and adult brained you know?
3: No, that, that this is an argument I have often with my daughter. I, um, generally dislike any candy that could be confused by the naked eye for plastic. <laughs> <laughs> so like mike and ike's jelly beans all of those things um i don't like there are a couple exceptions i like uh i like starburst although i think cherry flavor yeah. is garbage um but for the most part i i'm a more of a salty and savory guy and so chocolate is always going to win particularly chocolate with the cookie or not kind of
0: action. i don't doubt that it wins yeah, now
3: i'm not a no but
0: even I'm as a kid
1: I'm not a big, yeah, just pure sugar. I don't have a big sweet tooth in general. Like if I could go trick-or-treating and you could give me a filet at every house, I would much (laughs) rather have like big and savory.
3: Actually, you know, pork chops are almost a perfect size. Not pork chops, lamb chops are perfect size
1: for like trick-or-treating. I should do that. That would be great. My kids would be so embarrassed if I just gave out lamb chops. But that's what I would prefer. Halloween would be better. Brats You'd be swarmed by the parents for the lamb (laughs) chops. That (laughs) is true. That is true. So, uh, Uh, But I never liked the the sugar stuff that much. Did you answer the question?
0: No, because I mean, the truth is that Reese's full size and Snickers minis are my favorite now, but I think Sweet Tarts and It's Ilk uh, were Uh, probably higher on my list early. And I think that the um, thing that adults give trick-or-treaters that they forget that actually at that age you don't like are the... um, hershey's chocolate nugget bars that come in the fun pack or whatever and like you're getting dark chocolate as a five-year-old which is delicious for adults but is like actual hot garbage for children
3: yeah it's like giving them (laughs) right like it's pointless
0: So I just I urge all the listeners, it's like healthy chocolate. If you're gonna do uh, some trick or treating this year, I have a friend who has built a slide so that from their second story townhome, they're going to have a candy slide for social distancing, where they send down candy to the trick or treaters. Get creative, support your local children and their sugar needs, um, but don't give them dark chocolate. Take that for yourself.
3: Well, so what, first of all, what are people putting? What are you guys actually putting out? Because we, by tradition, at the Goldberg household, put out um, Tootsie Pops, lots and lots of Tootsie Pops. But um, <laughs> I, I don't know why we've mono, monomaniacally focused on this one candy. But it's pretty much what we put out. and We're known for it. Um, and I defer to the lady folk. But uh, what do you guys put out? Reese cups,
0: Reese cup.
3: and Snickers, so- and are they different than, than, re- than, than Reese than Reese's?
0: I thought he- <laughs> was just like stumbling over his words.
3: No, this is
0: this is a major
3: regional thing in America, and it makes me it it it, 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 it drives me crazy. Reesey. Hey, hey wh- David, what do you call the footwear you use for sports? Tennis shoes. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. What do you call the thing that firemen hook up their hoses to to get water to put out fires? A faucet. Or a fire hydrant. Fire hydrant. Okay. I mean, there are all these words that are regional. What do you call uh, uh, soda products that are cokes? Yeah. Cokes. Okay. Yeah. So, like, you would you would at a restaurant, a waiter would say or waitress would say, "What would you like to drink?" And you say Coke, and then they would say, "What kind?"
0: No. What kind of cokes do you have?
3: have?" Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right.
3: no. all right. yeah. What <laughs> kind of cokes do you have? We have Pepsi. <laughs> you see now, if you ask Mitch McConnell that, you get a very different answer. <laughs>
0: like, so.
2: There's this great New York Times site that will ask all those questions, and yeah. it is remarkably accurate. It pegs me as uh, coming, originating just like just north of Chattanooga, and I live, you know, about a ninety. Miles north of Chattanooga, northwest of Chattanooga. So it,
3: that thing got me within like five square blocks of where I grew up. <laughs> That's but amazing. it completely blew, it completely missed my wife because there's just not enough data on Fairbanks, Alaska to <laughs> mm. narrow that down.
1: But. Is it still live? Could we link? Yeah, to it? Yeah, it's
0: still live in the show. Yeah,
1: oh, I'd like sure to made it through our family done. group text the other day.
0: All right, we'll put that in the show notes. Thank you all for listening. Have a wonderful and safe Halloween. We will see you after Election Day.